Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, A55 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, my guest today is a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Jack to the show. Hi, Jack. Hi, Bill. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Jack, you know, the format of the show is we usually start talking about um, your early life and family and things that influenced you growing up. So do you want to share about... Um, how things were for you as a kid? Yeah, of course. Um, so I kind of grew up in a, a very loving, caring, nurturing family. Um, so I grew up in Perth, um, spent some time overseas in England for about four years. Um, but, yeah, in general, I'd say, um, yeah, very, very kind of happy, happy life. Um, got a brother and sister who, yeah, played plenty of sport with them. Um, and yeah, in general, family life was great. Um, I, I guess, transitioning into um, kind of first exposure to gambling. My, with my story, um, I'm kind of fortunate in the sense that I didn't have any compulsive gamblers um, in my family. Um, my grandfather, he, he was probably what we call a social gambler. So uh, he owned a few racehorses and. I guess early days, um, one of my kind of first memories of going to the races was um, just, yeah, go, going to watch one of my grandfather's horses horses uh, run and I actually won the race. So, uh, yeah, one of my first memories was going to the, the winner's circle, seeing my grandfather there, and um, I think that's kind of the first first kind of taste of, taste of racing. Yeah. So how old were you then? I uh, would have been probably about 12, 13. Okay. Um, so what sort of relationship did you have with your brother and sister? Uh, yeah, we're all, all very close. So I'm the youngest of three. Uh, so my sister's the eldest, uh, about five years older than me, um, and my brother's two years older. So I'd say it's a, it was a pretty typical kind of sibling relationship uh, with my older brother, played played plenty of sport, Uh quite competitive in that sense um but yeah we're all all really close um so yeah it was a it was a good upbringing yeah um how about your mum and dad yeah so um also very close with mum and dad um dad i guess for uh, uh, quite a lot of my childhood um his his job a lot of it was working overseas uh, so he would spend quite a bit of time in time in England um, for his work. So uh, there would be periods of time where it would just be mum and us three kids, uh, which was obviously difficult. 
um, would have been yeah tr tremendously difficult for dad. Uh, but then also I think yeah it would have had a had an impact on mum, having to raise kind of the three of us and uh, um, yeah some of my kind of early memories are of yeah well I guess missing dad um, quite a lot and I think it was always the way. I kind of reflect on it was um, that was kind of dad's uh, not obligation, but almost his duty as a father that he had to kind of sacrifice time away from us kids um, to support the family, which yeah, as I mentioned would have been, would have been really tough, but um, yeah, obviously has a, has an impact like blow on effects on us kids and, and mum as well. Yeah. So did anybody in the family have any, drinking or drug or mental health issues like anxiety or depression or things like that? Yeah, so I wouldn't say on dad's side, um, not that I know of. Um, on mum's side, so my auntie, uh, she's an alcoholic um, who's, yeah, not in recovery at the moment. Um, so she lives in lives in England, so mum's, mum's side of the family is English. Um, and then, yeah, my sister, uh, she had a... Um, had a bouts of depression as well, uh, kind of going through going through school, um, and yeah, thankfully she's in a in a very good headspace at the moment, um, and yeah, continually working on herself. So um, that's probably brought yeah, me and her closer, um, in a sense, especially probably in the last few years in my own recovery, when I've been able to open up to her and be vulnerable. Um, so that's really kind of strengthened our relationship. And then also on mum's side. Uh, so my grandfather, who unfortunately I never had the opportunity to meet, um, he had depression and he ended his own life uh, when my mum was pregnant with my sister. And then uh, one of mum's sister uh, sisters um, also had depression and she also ended her life. Uh, I think she was around 18 years old. So there's a lot of yeah, kind of depression uh, and mental health battles on on mum's side. Um, and I myself, I guess over yeah over the last little period, um, and especially just before I kind of seeked help, I uh, was suffering um, quite a lot from anxiety and and I would say depression as well. So yeah, it's definitely definitely in the family. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid it it goes with addiction. Um, yeah, a lot of people use drugs or alcohol or gambling to try and not so much solve their addiction, but cope um, cope with their depression and anxiety and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what about schooling? What was what was school life like for you? Yeah, school school was good. Um, I did enjoy it. Um, so, a little part of my schooling was was in England, um, which I don't have yet too many too many memories of. I was quite young, uh, but then school back in Perth. Um, I went to a, an all boys school. Um, had a very close close group of friends. Um, so yeah, in, in general, I'd say I was um, yeah happy at school. Uh, it's kind of close group of friends that I do stay in contact with now. Um, so yeah, schooling in general, yeah, I'd say I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said that you you started or you went. You had your first, I guess, winning experience around twelve or thirteen. So, how did it progress from there in your in your teens, your gambling? 
Yeah, so um, it's interesting. About two years ago, uh, when I initially sought help, I actually asked my mum what what kind of my younger years were like. A lot of my childhood, um, and I'm not sure of the reasons why, but a lot of my childhood, probably before the age of 10, I I don't have too much recollection of. Um, So a couple of years ago, I actually asked mum, said, oh, what was I like as a as a, as a kid, um, and she obviously knew at that point that um, I was seeking help for my gambling. And she actually told me a story of uh, one day she took me into, I would have been about six or seven, and she took me into a newsagent's. Um, and as she was at the checkout, I saw I saw the scratchies um, up on the up on the counter, and apparently I uh, yeah had a massive tantrum because um, leading up to that point. My, my grandmother, always for my birthday and for Christmases, would would buy scratchies. Um, so that was probably my first kind of taste of taste of winning um, and technically gambling um, in the in the GA, I guess, yeah, rules or in the GA sense of it. So um, yeah, it's interesting as a six seven year old um, chucking a, chucking a tantrum uh, when I saw the scratchies. But I guess after that uh, kind of first winning experience when I saw my grandfather um, at the races in the winning circle. Um, I first went to the races um, with the intention to gamble when I was probably about 15 years old. And it was at the, at a country racetrack with one of my best friends. And um, I was always very, very late to mature uh, physically. So I, I never stood a chance uh, placing a bet, bet myself. So um, the night before me and my friends would, write down our tips um, and my friend who probably just got away with looking 18 uh, was in charge that day of of putting the bets on for me and him and we had a we had a pretty successful day uh, he did get pulled up though by the the undercover the undercover cop so uh, but that I don't think that was enough to deter us um, so from then on yeah I guess going through school we always uh, did the Melbourne Cup sweep Um so I was always aware of aware of the races and uh, probably from yeah the age of 16, 17, I was able to uh, get a few friends to put bets on um, and I would have probably considered myself a pretty pretty lucky punter um, and it was those wins that probably kept kept me coming back um, and then, yeah, it obviously, obviously pro- progressed from there. Yeah. So what did the win feel like for you? Yeah, so... Um, I guess the the races, um, going to the races and experiencing, I guess the horses crossing the line and that the sound of the hooves and that that thrill and then realizing that my horse won. Um, I guess it was that that rush of blood, that ecstatic feeling. Um, and yeah, I guess throughout my kind of gambling career, it was that feeling that I kind of kept getting uh, sucked back into. Um, a big thing for me with gambling was, um, I guess, escaping escaping uh, the situation I'm in or I guess that set, so sometimes I would say it was a sense of relief when I was, when I was gambling, um, especially, yeah, probably when I was in my 20s um, and just before I got help, I was, I was using gambling as probably a coping mechanism. So, yeah, I... I did did crave that feeling of, of winning a race, but 
almost by the end, it wasn't about that anymore. Um, it was more an escape, um, escape from my feelings, escape from having to be present uh, with my thoughts. So I don't know. I think it, it kind of it kind of developed over time from when I was a social gambler and I was just – it was probably more about the money then um, and the thrill of winning a race and then it developed over time. Um, and became more of a more of an emotional illness, um, and I think that's yeah, kind of what what made me seek help in the end. Yeah, from my understanding, with talking to gamblers, um, it's it's almost always you know trying to escape from something. And you talked about escaping from from your feelings. So, what sort of things were you, were you feeling uneasy about at that point in your life? Yeah, so um, yeah, it's a very very good point you make. I think often with addiction. I feel like people people think that um, the addiction itself is the problem, but I've kind of learned over the last few years that the addiction is a solution, albeit not a very good one. Um, and for me, uh, I guess a key event in my childhood, um, and I guess like many, many addicts, I've got some childhood trauma. So uh, when I was about six, six or seven years old, um, I was sexually abused and it went over – uh, period of about six months um, and I guess because the perpetrator was also under 18 years old um, for a lot of my life I I never blamed that person um, and I think a lot of a lot with trauma if you don't have someone to blame you often blame yourself um, so I felt very shameful even at even at such a young age and I've kind of carried that trauma with me up until two years ago so when I was uh, yeah, 26 years old, um, and I never told anyone about it. I felt like I couldn't couldn't tell my family um, just because of that, just because of that shame um, and embarrassment. So um, yeah, I didn't didn't really seek any help at the time, and it's not until now when I reflect on it that I kind of I kind of think, how was a kind of seven year old meant to meant to seek help from their parents? Um, and I think it's kind of a natural reaction just to bottle it up um, but obviously that has very kind of unhealthy co- consequences and one of them for me is not being able to uh, express my emotions or express how I feel um, so all throughout my childhood I always felt like I shut off um, which yeah which mum mum always picked up on it um, she always pulled me aside as a kid and said uh, Jack what's going on please open up to me and and I never did um and yeah, I guess I, I carried what happened to me, yeah, all throughout my all throughout my childhood. Um, and I guess one of those negative consequences is, um, yeah, and I guess it's one of my character defects is I've always avoided communication and I let let things build up, build up, build up. I let the pressure build up, and sadly for me, it would come out through gambling. Uh, but yeah, it could come out through anything: gambling, drinking, drugs, sex. So. Uh, um, yeah, for me it was gambling, but yeah, at times I would I would drink too much. At times I would take drugs just to yeah, just to escape. Um, I guess the the current current problems I'm facing. Mm, yeah, no, it doesn't. It, it's not a good thing, no matter what what you know, how you how you place it, and it's really confusing for a child. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, so we might take a short break there, uh, and for our first song, uh, we've got uh, "Carry You." by Kate Lee. Uh, it's a recent release and it's courtesy of Kate uh, via AMRAP. 
Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. 
Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport, or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Uh, today I'm talking with Jack and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, so Jack, uh, you mentioned you know about 16, 17-year-old, gambling, um, going to the races, getting your friend to put bets on for you. So did things change as you sort of left school? Yeah, so um, just following on from what we are talking about before. So after school, I I moved over to Melbourne. Um, I was kind of craving a a new environment um, and getting out of Perth, which um, is quite common a lot of kind of 17, 18 year olds growing up in Perth. Um, so yeah, it was probably a very progressive, um, yeah, well, I guess, I guess it's renowned for being a progressive illness. So I'll say, yeah, from the age of kind of 18, 19, um, I probably classified myself as a social gambler. Um, I guess the races, uh, which yeah, I'd say my kind of two, yeah, two poisons were probably the races and um, sports betting. So the race is obviously a bit more prominent over here in Melbourne um, and sport in general. So uh, I I came over to Melbourne, uh, went, to, went to University of Melbourne and lived on campus. And, yeah, even even then, whenever there was a, a big race day on, a lot of the a lot of the boys on campus would be would be watching the racing. And I guess to start off, it would just be just be spring carnival but as the years went on it went from went from spring carnival to then uh betting every weekend um and then i guess over time it went to betting every weekend to betting every second day um and then probably when i had a lot going on in my life um yeah it went to went to gambling every day um so it was yeah it was definitely progressive in nature uh, and 
Yeah, probably straight up, straight out of school. There'd be periods where maybe I would put a bet on for a few months, um, and I think, yep, this isn't a problem. And then, yeah, when, yeah, when something would happen in my life, yeah, the the betting would increase. So it was, yeah, definitely a coping mechanism. But I, yeah, I definitely didn't think it was a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, you mentioned, you know, starting to use alcohol and eventually drugs. So how did that progression, did did using drugs or alcohol increase your gambling or not? Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely with drinking. I guess for me, uh, I guess the big, the big day for, for betting would be uh, on a Saturday, which often involved going to the pub, drinking. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely a lot of overlap. And I know for a lot of gambling addicts, uh, that they don't have a problem with drinking and they can, they can drink without, I guess, uh, getting sucked into, getting sucked into gambling. But as soon as, as soon as I started drinking, um, I knew that my walls were down and I was, yeah, exposed to, I was putting myself at risk to to gamble, so probably at the start I would I would often drink and gamble kind of hand in hand. But then as my gambling progressed, I yeah it would just be probably gambling on my own, isolating. Um, and then I think that's when I knew it was a it was a serious problem. Yeah, it, it's people. Yeah, <laughs> you see you see the images on TV of people having fun betting in pubs and, you know, very social. But, you know, it, it is a very uh, individual sort of occupation. Mm. W- was that because you didn't want other people to see how much you were gambling? Yeah, definitely. Um, and even the days where we're at the pub, uh, me and a group of friends, and we'd be, we'd be sharing our bets and um, some would win, some would lose. Often for me, um, when all my friends would stop, um, kind of at five, six p.m. I would, I would often duck off into the toilet. Uh, we'll pretend like I'm going to the toilet and and sit there and keep betting. Um, and it wasn't until I kind of opened up to a few friends that they they noticed that behaviour and they they did say to me, "Oh, yeah, we thought you might have might have had a problem." But yeah, I think I kept a lot of it a lot of it to myself. None of my friends knew the extent of my gambling. They thought. I was just the same as them, a social gambler. Uh, it'd be the end of a race meeting, and and everyone would stop. And if you if you lost for the day, so be it. Um, you'd wait till the I guess the next big big race day. But for but for me, it, I guess it wouldn't stop. Um, I would yeah, I'd bet late into the night. Um, I'd find overseas races, and then um, often I'd wake up the next morning with a hangover, with with bet regret. Um, but then, yeah, that those feelings of guilt um, and regret, I would overcome them by by getting back on the punt. So, I guess it's a vicious cycle, and yeah, led to led to my downfall. Yeah, how did you fund your gambling? Yeah, so when I was a uni student, a lot of lot of the funding, without without his knowledge, would come from dad. So, yeah, sadly, um, I, I did steal, um, mostly from dad, hoping, hoping he wouldn't notice. Um, I think there was a time when, when he pulled me up on it and instead of, 
uh, being truthful and honest, I, I said I was short on clothes and I needed some money, um, money to buy clothes. But yeah, as the as the gambling did deteriorate, yeah, I found, I guess I got got into a lot of unhealthy habits to a point where, yeah, the, what I'd be eating, I'd go to the supermarket. Um, I often stole to stole to fund my gambling. And yeah, considered considered selling items to fund it. Um, fortunately, I didn't. But often, yeah, it would be asking mum and dad for money, um, and that was the main way I sourced it. At least whilst I was at uni, and then it was probably when I started full time work. That's when things got truly out of hand because, um, yeah, my 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 pay packet would would a lot of the time would go purely to gambling. So. That was where the where the losses were, um, I guess, a lot bigger. So, how long did it take you to get rid of a salary after you got it? Um, yeah, so I guess at the lowest of lows, the pay would come in, and within 24, 48 hours, it would be gone, and I'd be, I'd have to wait another another two weeks, and that was, yeah, that was probably about three years ago now. Um, and yeah, it was probably the lo lowest point in my life where um, I had a lot going on with relationships, a lot of a lot of secrets. Yeah, I was lying, lying in relationship in relationships, and yeah, in general, I just wasn't in a wasn't in a good headspace, and um, yeah, that that kind of resulted in my gambling um, getting out of hand. Yeah, so to maintain a, a gambling habit like any addiction, you've really got to – you can't tell the truth to anybody. Yeah. And so it, it's very difficult having a – sorry, a close relationship with anybody. So what was it like, you know, having your relationships and trying to keep your gambling hidden? Yeah, it was difficult. Yeah, there was a, there was a web of lies often in my life. Um, it would be a lie upon lie. I'd, I'd find any excuse – um, I guess at times not to be with my girlfriend at, at the time. Yeah, Sunday would come around and I'd pretend I've got something on. Um, and yeah, sadly, I'd I'd often just go home, isolate myself. When it got really bad, I yeah, I cut out, cut off socialising. Even the thought of going to going to a pub to gamble, I'd I'd rather just gamble on my own. And that way, I don't have to. Put on this, put on this front, put on a brave face, pretend like I'm happy and um, life's going great. Um, it was, it was easier for me just to isolate myself, um, just in front of the TV, and yeah, lose, lose a lot of money. Yeah. So, how did you maintain? You know, I assume you're living separate from your parents at this time. Yep. Was it, was it hard to live? Yeah, I was uh, living by myself. So for me, the, the hidden aspect of it was was very easy. Um, and I was working full time, which was almost a relief um, being able to go to work and take my mind off it. So, yeah, it was there was almost a dread throughout the day knowing that as soon as the workday finished, my afternoon or my evening would involve going home by myself and gambling and it was almost inevitable that I was going to lose I knew I was going to lose but it was almost this self-inflicted pain 
that I was kind of willing to put myself through. But yeah, when it when it got really bad, um, I was I was in the office. Um, I actually worked in in stockbroking, which probably wasn't wasn't a great industry for a compulsive gambler. Um, and I'd often walk into the office. Uh, it could be any day of the week, and a lot of the a lot of the advisors uh, would own race horses, and the the races would be up on the TVs around the office. Mm. Um, and well, a lot of my colleagues would be putting on small bets, but I would have to go to the toilet um, and yeah, put on large bets and spend time in there. Um, and yeah, that was that was very hard. That's when I knew it was yeah, I guess very bad when it was affecting my work life. And yeah, it was it was uh, yeah, I guess affecting my productivity at work. And even when I wasn't betting at work, my mind would be on my mind would be on gambling, and um, I would often, yeah, up on my screen, I would have a, have up the form guide, or be checking what what was going to be going on on the weekend. So, um, yeah, it definitely took over my life. Yeah. So, did you know anybody at work who had a similar gambling problem? Were you aware of anybody who had a gambling problem? Uh, not that I, not that I know of. And I think that's the thing with compulsive gambling. There's, there's such a blur between, I guess, being a social gambler and a compulsive gambler. And I feel like in that, in that environment, um, a very male dominated environment with a, um, a lot of egos. Um, and I hope I'm not stereotyping there, but I don't think many, many would probably put their hand up and, um, I guess admit to their colleagues that they that they had a problem. Um, I definitely wasn't wasn't willing to do that. But yeah, even just judging the, I guess j- judging the betting chat that was happening on the floor, um, I wouldn't be surprised if yeah some some did have a did have a gambling problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I worked in IT uh, a lot of my life and. I worked with some energy traders when energy trading started in Victoria, um, yeah. and yeah, they yeah. almost exclusively went all to, went to the races and had races on during the day and all sorts of things. So I I, I know I know the environment you're talking about. It's it wasn't uh, conducive to um, getting work done, or if you had a gambling problem, it would have been a shocking environment to be in. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, so we'll take another short break there. Our second song is by Blair Juna. Uh, it's called Don't Tell Me. It's his recent release and courtesy of Blair uh, via AMRAP, Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. Radio MMT. The facts about economics. Radio MMT. With Anne and Kev bringing you fair and balanced reporting. They are bastards, utter incomplete bastards, Anne. (laughs) That's right. We're we're really digging into this bastardry. It's a smokescreen for corporations to increase their profit margin. All these big lies. Corporate profit and greed. They're considering it in their evil plans. He's the archetype megalomaniac neoliberal. The government pretending to be there for the The people. The neoliberal ethos of squeezing workers. This power struggle is continuously playing out under our very noses. So it's simplistic and it's inaccurate. What kind of an economic recovery? Strategy is Do you reckon that? it's more effective to say it's spurious to say the least or it's bullshit? <laughs> Radio MMT. The second and fourth Friday of each month. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we're talking with Jack about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, so, Jack, uh, before the break, we were talking about your gambling, where your gambling took you and the sort of situations you found yourself in with you know, lack of money and it impacting on your work. So what was the thing that caused you to seek help for your gambling? Yep. So uh, about two years ago, uh, my kind of life was turned upside down. Um, I I was in a relationship. Um, it wasn't, wasn't a great relationship. And um, yeah, that was, I guess, partly driven by my, I guess, by my secrecy um, and web of lies and um, like compulsive gambling. So yeah, I was in a relationship and I uh, very shamefully um, cheated on my girlfriend and I found out that I was actually uh, going to be a father. So at the time, I couldn't come to terms, um, I guess, with my actions um, and and the consequences. So for about three or four months, um, I kept it hidden and... Uh, Kept it hidden from my from my girlfriend at the time, and obviously holding such a big secret from her and from my family had very, I guess, detrimental effects on my on my mental health. Um, to a point where um, I, w- I wasn't sleeping at night. Um, I had to take sick days off work. Um, I had suicidal ideations. Um, I couldn't couldn't think of a way a way out of out of the problem I couldn't come to terms with kind of accepting responsibility for my actions um, and yeah I kind of hit a crossroad where I didn't know 
didn't know what to do. Um, I was very scared. I didn't know whether I should take the take the easy way out and um, end my own life or finally reach out for help. And I think after after about three or four months, I uh, made a desperate call. Um, and in the program, they call that God, the gift of desperation. And um, yeah, I made a call to my mum and dad and broke down and opened up to them and told them told them the news that I was uh, going to be a father. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to how to approach it. Um, and they were the ones who actually suggested that I need some time away. Um, so that's when I uh, I would have told them on on a Friday, and that following Monday I was I was in rehab, which totally changed my life. Um, I was in there for four weeks. Um, I was able to I was able to get away. Um, which, uh, yeah, I can I can understand that a lot of people aren't aren't fortunate in that sense that they can that, that they can go to a rehab facility. Um, but for me, I'm very grateful um, that I was able to do that for four weeks. And um, yeah, I came out of there just with a totally different mindset um, that I was going to embrace being a father. Um, I came out with a mindset that I did have a gambling problem over those three or four months of um, I guess keeping it to myself, um, where my mental health deteriorated, that's when my gambling really ramped up. Um, and I was gambling every day, wake up in the morning, gamble. And it was, it was my coping mechanism because if I wasn't gambling, I don't know, I guess what I would have done. Um, and yeah, I distinctly remember the day before on the Sunday, the day before I went into rehab, um, I had to send some messages out to friends just saying I'll be offline for four weeks and I was sitting in a car at the park and sending sending each text message, um, not in a good state of mind, and between every text message I'd have the races on and I will just be throwing throwing money away. Um, and I didn't care if it won or lost, but I just got a very, very small sense of relief for a minute or two and then all that, all that pain would come back. So... Um, yeah, it was probably probably the that news that forced me uh, to get help um, and to address my gambling and for me to realise that uh, there are there are ways of dealing with life on life's terms uh, without having to gamble or drink or do drugs. So it was yeah, it was a big event. Um, but I guess in those yeah two years, I've come a long way and. Um, yeah, I say to people that at the time it was it was the worst news, and now um, I couldn't be happier, and it's been the best best thing that's ever happened to me. So, yeah, it's amazing what two years can do. Yeah, well, it's amazing what accepting where you are can do as well. You know, just accepting the fact yeah. that you're in that situation, you've got to you've got to do something to get out of it. You can't worry about how you got into it. Yeah, it's uh, it's only looking forward. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So. When you're in rehab, what sort of things did they expose you to that helped? Yeah, so uh, I distinctly remember on the first night of rehab. Um, so every every night in rehab, they do a meeting. Uh, it's often AA uh, or an NA meeting, but um, I would by the end I would go to a separate room and and do my GA meeting. So it was uh, yeah reinforced that we had to do a meeting every day, every night. Um, and on my first night, I uh, 
every Monday night they did a did a rehab meeting where um, I guess past past clients would jump on a Zoom call um, and attend the meeting. Um, and yeah, I remember getting up at that meeting and sharing my story or part of my story. Um, and I, I know he wouldn't mind me mentioning, but um, one of my great friends, Shahir, he was also a gambling addict and he, he was on the meeting and he, um, yeah, just addressed me and said, I've taken the biggest step, um, step forward by admitting I've got a problem, admitting I need help. And I sat there for about three or four minutes, just bawling my eyes out. Um, and it was very reassuring that um, someone in a similar position to me kind of wrapped their arms around me and said it was going to be okay. Um, so, yeah, we got exposed to meetings. Um, and they so they run, a, they run a program in there where I guess one of the first steps is telling your story, uh, which I'd never done before. Um, so all the way from childhood, similar to, I guess, what, what we're doing here. Um, and even that, sharing my story, there's a lot of, I guess, well, there was a lot of shame and regret and guilt um, in some of my past actions. And it was, yeah, it was quite uh, quite liberating sharing my story and um, everyone in the room coming up to hug me and telling me it's okay and um, telling me I'm not a, not a bad person for the way I acted. So it was a very... Uh, I guess comforting environment, and yeah, it's similar similar to a GA program where they, they kind of run you through your character defects, help you identify what your defects are, um, and you share your story. Uh, so it's a very kind of shortened version of doing, I guess, the twelve steps of recovery. Um, but yeah, I guess one of the key takeaways for me at rehab was um, setting a setting a routine. So getting up early every day, making your bed as soon as, as mundane as it seems and as simple as it seems, it can have a big impact. So making your bed, um, doing a gratitude list every morning, um, which I guess for me helps me focus on the positives in life, not the, not the negatives. I do, I do my morning readings. Um, so one day at my book um, and just for today, and um, meditation, which is which is key for me, especially as an overthinker, um, and I still still suffer a little bit from anxiety. So meditation helps me kind of calm my mind. So um, getting into that routine over the four weeks and being able to apply that into my day to day life um, definitely helped. Mm. So what was life like once you came out of rehab? Yep. So uh, first thing I did was. Uh, resigned, <laughs> had to get out of that uh, stockbroking environment for obvious reasons and uh, sold all my investments. And um, I was fortunate that I could take some time away before deciding what I wanted to do next. Um, and that also allowed me in rehab, they they kind of drill into you that at the start of your recovery, you need to do 90 meetings in 90 days. So I was doing a lot of GA meetings around Melbourne. Um, and then when I wasn't doing GA, I was attending AA meetings because uh, at rehab it was a total abstinence program, so no drinking, no drugs, no gambling. Um, so every day I was going to a meeting, um, which, as I mentioned earlier in my story, for someone who is very poor at communicating and expressing their emotions, um, getting forced to share for 
five, six minutes every day on, on your feelings and emotions um, was probably the best thing for me. So um, it was just focusing on my routine, figuring out what I wanted to do next and kind of embedding myself in the GA program and getting a sponsor to go through the steps. Mm. Um, so that would have been through um, COVID as well. So how did, was that a, an impact on you? Yeah, so I was in rehab kind of at the end of end of COVID. So a lot of those meetings were on Zoom, uh, but I was fortunate kind of as I came out of rehab, they were just opening up the um, the in-person meetings. So a lot of the meetings, especially kind of AA and NA, would do online and in person. Um, but yeah, I was fortunate a lot of my a lot of my GA meetings, um, I guess, once I left rehab, were were in person. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, in person meetings are are very good for newcomers, particularly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what about your life now? What's what's your life like now? Yeah, so life now is uh, very different. Uh, so I've got a got a baby daughter, and her name's Pia. Uh, she's thirteen months old. Um, so I'm totally embracing embracing fatherhood um so i get to see her a couple of times a week um so she is yeah, everything in my life right now which is which is amazing and i'm actually i've gone back to uni uh so i'm doing a masters of teaching um so halfway through that uh i'm living at one of the one of the boarding schools uh in melbourne so for me um yeah, I definitely needed to change career and it was actually reading a book called The Resilience Project, which I highly recommend. Um, and after reading that book, I thought, what career could I have, a, have an impact on on, um, on the youth um, and kind of be a bit of, be a, bit of a role model? Um, and yeah, I, I kind of think if someone was in my position uh, when they were young, um, what kind of role model what I look up to. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to be that for, for the students at the boarding house. Um, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully when I'm teaching, um, yeah, so, soon after I finish study. Yeah. Um, so what's your relationship like with your parents and brother and sister now? Yeah. So, uh, it's definitely brought us all, all closer, which yeah, it's a, it's a nice feeling. Um, just knowing that I've kind of had an impact on them and um, they've yeah obviously had a huge impact on me and even just small things like, um, yeah, my sister was struggling uh, probably about nine months ago now and um, I told her about every day I do a gratitude list um, and I started sending my gratitude list to her and ever since then, every day I get a gratitude list from my sister. So it's nice. It's nice having that, that daily check-in. And yeah, I see some whole family still lives in Perth, but um, now that mum and dad are grandparents, they're they're over here a lot more. Um, but it's nice having a relationship where uh, I don't have to don't have to hide any emotions. I don't feel judged. Um, so I guess yeah, the GA program and everything I learned in rehab um, yeah has a has a big impact on. All relationships, um, relationships with my with my current girlfriend. Um, I can be 
I can be honest, I can be vulnerable with her, I can cry. In the past, I always thought crying was a sign of weakness, but um, she's amazing in the sense that I can probably never cry so much in my life, but it's, um, yeah, it's great to be able to release a lot of that, uh, yeah, emotion and, yeah, things are things are great. So, yeah, very grateful. Mm. No, it sounds really good. If anybody would like to find out more about Gambles Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Victoria on 0396966108 or go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information on recovery from compulsive gambling. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Jack for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gambles Anonymous has helped his recovery. Thanks, Jack. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Cheers. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking with Jasmine about the impact of alcohol addiction and her recovery journey. Coming up next, we have Belenoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Tal Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the Spirit of War on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we've got a song called You On My Side. It's by Ania Banji, AJ, and it's his recent release, and it's courtesy of Ania Ban at AMRAP, Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. With you
wanna breathe, I wanna rise I cannot hide the feeling of you on my side You made me feel the love is real In your eyes I recognize the beauty of listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.